You are now listening to the Claim It Podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, also known as your joyologist. On this podcast, I love having conversations with people who inspire and intrigue me going through the journey of their lives. I just love learning more about people's life path and showing (laughs) that these people that have done amazing things who are incredible humans, it wasn't just like so easy that we all have our own struggles, twists and turns in the path, things that we thought we wanted that we end up not wanting, all of that stuff. I hope that listening to other people's stories gives yourself more compassion for yourself and your own journey and also empowers you to try things a different way. If you're not enjoying what you are up to, the relationships you're in, all of it. So on today's episode, I have Christine Carlson. She's a New York Times bestselling author and renowned speaker. She's recognized worldwide for the global success of Don't Sweat the Small Stuff book series, which was co-authored with her late husband, Dr. Richard Carlson. So yeah, she talks about that journey with her husband and him being an author for many, many, many years and how it actually took a long time for him to become this huge success with that series, um, her starting to write, her losing him, and so much. So her story was actually even made into a Lifetime movie where Heather Locklear played her. Interesting. I still haven't watched it. I'm going to have to go watch it. (laughs) All right. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Please make sure to hit the follow button. That's like subscribing to the podcast and leave a review if you haven't. I, of course, love to read your reviews. I love to see you share on social media that you're listening. Um, But it also, the reviews help podcasts become more discoverable. You know, they help a fellow listener who's looking for something interesting to hit that play button and get into it. So reviews really matter and I appreciate them so much. And speaking of reviews, if you have my book, F the Shoulds, Do the Once, can you please leave that a review also on Amazon, on Goodreads, wherever you got it. And if you haven't gotten it yet, go to ftheshouldsdothewants.com. You have links there for all the places to order it. And you can still claim the five-part bonus video series and the special tapping meditation. So go to ftheshouldsdothewants.com. All right, let's get into the episode. Okay, so I love starting with hearing about growing up, but especially the high school years of people's lives, because I feel like that can be such a exciting, but also stressful time in life where it can sort of feel like you're like, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? (laughs) So what was life like for you in high school? And did you have any like dreams or goals or being pushed by anybody else to pursue anything? Yeah. Well, wow. I got to go way back for high school, (laughs) you know, but recently I was talking to my kids actually about high school. They're grown up now too. They're in their thirties, but I was saying that I went to my 10 year reunion and I remember seeing a slideshow of 
all of us in high school. And I remember seeing a picture of myself in class, unbeknownst to me that the camera was taking this picture. And I remember like noting how incredibly bored I looked. <laughs> <laughs> like, like the look on my face would have said anything, but she's going to become an inspirational <laughs> author. <laughs> I looked Love it. like I was literally sick. I was just, I was so bored out of my mind. And I remember that I looked at that picture. And I thought, wow, that uh, wow. And then I, and then I was standing next to this guy at the 10 year reunion and I'll never forget it. Cause it was one of the funniest things. He looks at me and he goes, Oh yeah. I remember you from high school. He goes, you probably didn't even notice me in high school. He said, I can't believe like I wanted to come back and see all these people. He said, he said, they never even knew I existed in high school. What the hell am I doing here anyway? <laughs> you know, I was just like, wow, you know, that pretty much, I mean, high school is, I don't know, you know, it, it, it I, um, I think it's a tough time in life. Totally. Uh, Which is of, why I like it. talking about yeah. it. <laughs> I also feel like in high school that we ourselves, but also the world can, like I said, be putting this pressure on us as if like, all right, you're about to be adults. And like, you know, like it's sort of, it can feel this pressure or, and also in high school, I felt this urge to like both stand out and fit in, like really like wanting to be like adored, but be like unique, but like, like all of these different things. But yeah, just like the pressure that we can put on kids in high school for like what the rest of their lives can look like. And then like going into college for an older, like, you know, and like so much of it usually ends up not really mattering (laughs) or like. When I, I watched my girls go through high school and the pressure that just nowadays is even so much higher about the standards and because of standardized education and the way we are, you know, teaching our high schoolers now, the pressure is even that much more. And to get into college, you know, to get it, if only every high schooler would know when they started their college application process that there is a college for everyone and that it doesn't really matter. Like, unless you're going to go, go to a Harvard, a Princeton, a Stanford or a Yale, I suppose that really does matter to your career. Um, to a certain degree because of those Ivy League kind of good old boy networks that you can get into. But unless you're going to go to one of those, really, nobody really even asks you ever where you went to college. And so, but we don't tell our high schoolers that, you know, we, we, I remember my kids would be up all night working on essays and projects for school. And I go to bed at nine o'clock and I felt so guilty because they were, you know, getting less sleep than I got and they were young and still growing. And it was brutal. Like it's, it's brutal nowadays what kids have to go through. And I think, you know, you're probably a lot younger than I am. So I don't know how it was for you, but I still felt a lot of pressure in high school myself. And I think it's because as that age, you're starting to become, you know, who you are and your identity is still molding and forming and shaping. And I mean, let's just face it, you know, even the most confident people in high school are not very confident. No, totally. (laughs) You know, they look confident, but they probably aren't very confident. They don't really know who they are yet. 
And that's just, that's sort of the nature of the beast of the age. Yeah. And also what you're saying about like, it doesn't matter so much with college. I think too, it rarely, rarely even matters like what you study. <laughs> you know, it's like no, it doesn't it, even it, it, matter really. <laughs> I mean, obviously if you're like going to be a doctor and then, well, but I mean, I don't even know if undergrad, like it might, I've never, but um, yeah. Anyway. So, okay. So when you were in high school, did you have any ideas of like, oh, I'm going to college or these are things that I think I will be or were you just like in in high school trying to enjoy it and make it through? No, you know, I was I was a really hard, hard worker in high school. I don't know why exactly because I honestly didn't even think in terms of I'm working hard to get to college. I, I was the classic um, and I guess in that way, I've always been a very present kind of person because I was the classic October of my um, junior year, I think when you're starting to have to look at college applications and, and, or even maybe it was even senior year. I mean, I think they go in on senior year even. And I was like, October, fall, where are you going to college, Chris? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, haven't thought about it yet. And then I think I was in choir one day and um, a brochure was going around and I remember I wasn't paying too much attention. And then this brochure went on my lap and it was a Pepperdine university brochure. And I looked at that brochure and I was like, started flipping through it. And I was like, what, you can go to college places like this. I was in okay. Oregon. I grew up in Oregon. So in Beaverton, Oregon. So I'm like, what? You could go to college places like this. <laughs> and somebody said to me next, next to me, well, boy, you better be really rich to go to college there. Cause you know, it's, it's super expensive. And I, and I didn't pay much attention to that. And my parents didn't even know, but I applied and I, I, I just went through the application process and I got accepted. And then I got an academic scholarship and I was shocked. I'm like, I didn't even know I qualified for an academic scholarship, but there, there it was. I had worked hard and I had really good grades and it paid off and I wasn't even planning on it paying off, but I ended up going to Pepperdine um, for about the same cost as it would have cost me to go to Oregon or Oregon state. Love that. And I know. And I, I, and I met my, I met the love of my life at Pepperdine? And I really, at Pepperdine. So I kind of knew like, I, I just, I, I've always lived that way where I've got kind of the, I sort of follow the divine lead. I followed the inspiration and I, I wouldn't have known that's what I was doing at that young age, but I was very, grew up in a very um, Christian household. While I would not consider myself the traditional Christian today as I was then, I certainly my upbringing and the foundation of my spirituality is from my Christian upbringing. And, um, and I really lived very attuned to my, my relationship with God in high school and during that time in my life. And so I always just trusted that if I just stepped, you know, forward, I would be stepping in the right direction. Even if I didn't know what direction that was going to be, it was just how I lived and it was how I was innately programmed to live. So, um, it really paid off big time. When, when, I, when I headed to Pepperdine and then I met Richard and I had the, a great college experience, you know, it was really beautiful. And when you, um, was it just like next step, like go to college? Cause that's like 
something a lot of people are expected to do? Like, did you even have an idea of I will do this or just like, oh, this school looks beautiful. And then (laughs) okay, college, I do that. I I had no idea. No, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life at all. In fact, I think I pretty much planned my coursework around staying out of any math class in college. (laughs) So it was basically, I planned my entire, you know, what, I mean, I didn't want to take math. That's all I knew. So I couldn't do certain, you know, course outlines and certain things because I knew I didn't want to take math. So (laughs) I ended up a communications major um, at Pepperdine, um, which is a liberal arts college. So it was a really solid major there, but that's what I ended up um, majoring in was communication. And then, so you met the love of your life there. And did you all then like after college end up, did you get married young or like what happens after college? Yeah. Well, Richard was two years older than me and he was a Pepperdine tennis star. I mean, meaning, yeah, like meaning he was slated number one at Pepperdine, which was the number one team in the nation. Oh, (laughs) wow. Yeah. (laughs) So when I met him, he had been redshirted, which means that when you transfer as a sophomore into another school in, in um, tennis, you can't compete for a full year after you transfer. So he got redshirted, meaning that's what it Like you get recruited, you but yet they don't have space for you to play in that season or no, something like not, that. No, it's not oh, space. Okay. It's just, it's a, it's a oh, rule. Okay. It's like they, it, keeps, it keeps college athletes from jumping Got it. to college, to college, to team, to team. Cause you have to be like fully committed but, of like, you're going to be here for a year before we allow you to play. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So he was captain of San Jose state's tennis team as a freshman, but his big rival, Brad Gilbert at the time went to uh, Pepperdine. And so he wanted to go. Over the fact to that you just said his full arrival. name, just like, I don't know. I just love that. You're like. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brad Gilbert's a public figure. Okay. So he, he was, got it. He was, he was noted as being, um, he's noted as being a uh, top 10 uh, player ranked in the world. Got it. So he, he, was, he was Andrew, Andrew, Andrew Agassi. Andrew. His coach. Oh, okay. For a very, very long time, not Andrew. I forget what his name is. Andre. Agassiz. Yeah. Andre. I'm like, Agassi's all of a sudden, now I'm not saying it right. <laughs> like, wait, what is it? <laughs> right, right, right. So so he he's he's a well-known public figure. Okay, and, so he was yeah, at yeah. Pepperdine at the time. He was at Pepperdine. Yeah, he was at Pepperdine at the time. And, and so Richard wanted to come over to Pepperdine, not only for that reason, but just because Pepperdine was the number one team in the nation. And so, yeah, so that's where I met him. Uh, was on campus at Pepperdine. And then, yeah, Dil, you obviously stayed together. And then, yeah, did he end up pursuing like his then tennis career after college? Well, no, that's that's when he fell in love with me. <laughs> when tennis didn't work out? No. <laughs> I, I actually, because he didn't, because I didn't know that he was number one on the tennis team, redshirted, I thought I knew all the tennis teams. So one day, right shortly after we met, I asked him, well, what do you, what do you do? Like you're always wearing sweats. And he said, Oh, I hit with the tennis team. And I go, Oh, well, and I, in my mind, I'm thinking, Oh, he hits with the tennis team. That means like, he's like a ball boy, you know, like he's just like, like he's just there to like help them. Like they got to hit to practice and he's just like, yeah. (laughs) 
he's just there. <laughs> so that's, that's in my mind. That's what I was thinking. And so I was like, Oh, well, do you love tennis? And he goes, he's kind of looked at me and I said, Hmm, nobody's really asked me that question before. And I said, and he kind of thought about it. He goes, not really. And I go, Oh, well, if you don't love tennis, but you, you, you play a lot of tennis. And he goes, yeah, I go, why do you do that? And he looks at me and I swear to God, I, I saw in his eyes, like he was staring at me like really intently. And he goes, that's probably the most brilliant question anyone has ever asked me. And I thought, holy shit, what did I just say? Right, because you like, don't know like, that like tennis shit. has probably been his entire life. His life entire life. Long. <laughs> yeah, his entire life. I've no, I've You're just no like, knowledge oh, well, do you I like it? <laughs> I don't know that he's number five in the nation. Like, the, I don't know that he played Wimbledon that wow. summer. He was I don't in Wimbledon. this. He played Wimbledon in the quarterfinals. And so I, I was just sitting there going, uh, and then, and then I went back to my suite and I was talking to one of my suite mates and she said, you're, I told her, I go, God, I just met, I've met the coolest guy. I really, really, really like this guy. And she's like, well, who is it? I go, oh, you probably don't know him. And she goes, what's his name? And I go, he, his name is Richard Carlson. And she goes, you met Richard Carlson. And I, I sat there, I went, well, yeah, who's Richard Carlson? And she pulls out the Pepperdine Voice, the newspaper. There's a picture of Richard with his feet like six feet off the ground. And he's just got this grimacing, competitive, like gnarly look on his face and his, his racket slammed back. And he and it says, Richard Carlson, number one seed at Pepperdine, redshirted for the next year. And I just sat there and I gulped and I was like, holy shit, I just told this guy he should quit tennis. <laughs> And she said, she goes, ah! what? <laughs> like, God, I tried to hold my laughing. <laughs> what? And I said, oh, my God. But you know what? The thing is, he really looked like he wanted to listen to me. Like, he really looks like he wants to quit tennis. And she said, oh, my God. I think that's just going to make you the most unpopular girl at Pepperdine. <laughs> I go, well, maybe with everyone but him. <laughs> so did he end up so, quitting? He no quit. way. Wow. He quit that year. Yep. He quit that year. And I was probably the key support for him to do that. And why well, not? Right. Because people he, aren't going to like, sure, that's him and his career, but people don't want that. Like, that's like, <laughs> you're not allowed to quit things. No. Like, <laughs> no. But you know, the truth is that I think that Richard already knew that he had peaked out early and that he had probably done what he was going to do in his tennis career and that he would be on the downward slope from that point. And, and I think also he, 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 he spent his summer um, in Europe and he, all he did was he looked for clay courts and grass courts in Europe. And he said, it was such a, 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 an eye opener for him because he just realized that was going to be his life, that he was going to be in these really cool places, but he'd have no time to really enjoy those places because he'd be looking at, he'd be looking down the center line of tennis courts. And, and then he also, he had a deep, deep philanthropic, just natural um, tendency to want to serve in a very philanthropic capacity. And he didn't have the time to pursue 
his academic career, he didn't have the time to pursue any acts of giving. And the first thing he did was he quit tennis and he became um, a big brother with Big Brothers of America. And he, you know, was a big brother to this little boy who didn't have a father in his life. And it was one of the most gratifying experiences of Richard's life. He became this mentor to this um, little boy named Gene and, and, and it just, it was, they had a beautiful relationship for, you know, for years and years after. And, and it, and it, he, you know, he just, he just knew that his career was to be something different than a professional tennis player. And, um, and then it was just always my job to, you know, to support him in following his gut and his passion and his heart. And I think that was at the very um, success of our marriage together was this high level of reverence for what each other really desired to do in life and how we could support each other in being that true best version of who we were to become. And I definitely, I was a really wonderful partner to him that way and always was. Yeah. Despite some of the twists he made, I would be like, Huh? <laughs> I'd be like, what? What are we doing now? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I can't imagine but, what a gift um, your love and and how you expressed it would be for him and I'm sure for others in your life to like be that support for them to get to be, yes, like to follow what they're feeling and want. Because so often I can see in love that a lot of love being expressed like out of fear and doubt, like, no, 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 don't make that choice. Oh, but are you sure that as much as people can love and support others, like I, that's like the love I received as a kid, you know, was very much like, no, 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 but because you, you you're, they're trying to like protect people and be safe, but really like there is no real like, oh, choose a safe job or, oh, no, well, that person, you know, stay in that relationship. It can't be that bad or whatever it is, like these ways that so often people express love. Yeah, where it comes more from this fear of well, what could happen instead of like allowing people to trust themselves and you supporting you through that, them through that. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I, I think that as a woman and as Richard's woman, I knew who he was as a man. And I, I just knew in my heart that this man would rise to the top of whatever he decided to do. And that it was paramount for him to be aligned with what he felt passionate about doing. And that, yeah, I mean, it, it, he, he did, he absolutely did rise to the top of everything he ever did as a man. And he rose to the top in writing. He rose to the top as a healer and, and a guru of happiness. And, and, and it wasn't an easy journey. You know, it wasn't like it, it took 10 years for him to write Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. Um, he wrote 10 books prior to that book, which all then subsequently became bestsellers after Don't Sweat the Small Interesting Stuff. Interesting how that happens, but, right? But they... <laughs> Yeah, but but they weren't before, right, you but, know. I mean, he was <laughs> where it's like all suddenly, like you see a value, like oh, that something like catches on or whatever, and then it's like same. It could happen with ever, like a singer, like oh, a song becomes a hit, and then suddenly it's like it's not like they all of a sudden became. It's like if those then songs or those books then became bestsellers, it's not even like they weren't good enough or you know they didn't have oh, no, the they right were content, fabulous, but they didn't have the attention. Yeah, yeah. didn't have the attention. On That's them. one thing that 
sucks. But I also, it's one thing that actually helps me when like, oh, if you're not like, yeah, like we have, you know, I have messages I want to put out in the world. Or if you're an artist, oh, my song isn't. It's like, it really doesn't say much about your talent or what you've written or what you're saying. Like, and you know, it's, it can be like, oh, it's hard if I, you know, that message is not getting out there or that music is not reaching as many people as you want, but it really doesn't have anything to do with you. And you're, <laughs> no, I mean, of course we can try I, I different honestly, things to put things out and hire like all the stuff, but like, I don't know. It's, it's, but that's interesting. So what, so he quits tennis and I'm, it makes, sounds like you two become a team of your own. And so after college then, yeah, did he immediately like start writing books or, and what are no, you doing? No. Yeah. So after college we got, after I graduated two years after he graduated, we got married, but what he did was um, Richard had a, this is where it goes back to your point. It doesn't really matter what you do in college. Um, Richard was a political science business major in college. And then he went on to get, um, basically he, he went on to get his MBA and he was going to go into the world of finance because his dad could completely set him up in that world. His dad was really successful and could completely set him up on a career in finance. And then Richard um, got six classes. He was six classes to go at his MBA, which is really towards the last semester. And um, we were sitting in a cafe in Berkeley and he was like, "Um, I have something I want to talk to you about. And I said, well, what's that? And he goes, well, I don't think I'm going to get my MBA. And I go, what? Like you're, you're almost done. Like, what do you mean? You're not going to get your MBA. And he goes, yeah. He goes, I just, I don't think I'm cut out to be a financial guy. Like, I think that it goes, I really feel like I'm a healer. I really feel like that's what I am. And I'm, I'm like, and I, of course, you know, I, of course, I was listening and I said, well, what, what do you think you're going to do? And he goes, well, I think I'm going to become a rolfer. And I was like, whoa, MBA to Rolfer. Like that's, that's a little bit like being on a ski boat and taking the wake of a really big wake and not being prepared for it. Like you're like, what? <laughs> like, whoa, okay. So um, I, I knew, of course, what Rolfing was. We, it had been, we, we had been, Richard and I had been really um, in the new age movement. That's what we were in college was the very peak of the new age movement. And so we knew what everything was. We had done all of the personal growth tools, the flotation tank. Which back the, then, like, like the, these things are even now, like, I don't know if many people, right? like, I know what rolfing is. I don't know if a lot of people do. Like, yeah, but like now it's still even yeah. like newer stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a bodywork therapy. And it, and he had been rolfed because of his back for tennis. He had a bad back and rolfing helped him a lot. And, and his best friend was a rolfer, um, his rolfer. And so it, it was, so he, you know, I of course knew what it was and I, I was like, okay, you know, well, if that's, if that's what you want, honey, you know? And, and then he did that. And then, um, about six months into his rolfing career, Richard quickly realized that there was probably a real reason why he did that, but that it wasn't his end game, that rolfing was just a way to earn a living while he went back to school and got his master's and PhD in psychology. And 
then he knew he knew during that program he did kind of an alternative master's and phd program there's a lot of writing involved and he became a really fabulous writer during that program and he knew then that that's what he really what he was super passionate about was becoming a writer and and writing books on happiness and like for teaching people how to be happier um he never did go the traditional route in psychology because he didn't believe in traditional therapy and really helping a person progress on their happiness scale. He did believe in traditional therapy for trauma and certain things like that, but he just didn't think rehashing your problems every time you had a session with your therapist was going to help you very much. Like moving forward, he said, mostly people just would collect problems to talk mm. about at their therapy session. Yeah, no, I <laughs> get that. At least that's what he noticed. And so he and I mean, I've even yeah, had, so he, I'm sure too, like, yeah, because I do coaching and that a lot of people, and it's not, again, like therapy is necessary and especially what you said, like trauma and like that. Is. But yes, I have also worked with people where they're like, even like, I'm doing a group coaching program right now. It's only a four week program. We're two weeks in and people are like, I've been in 20 years of therapy and I feel like I've gotten more in the two weeks. And that's not to say that that therapy was wrong, but yeah, like, because it's different focuses that it's not like that. Yeah. It's like, you're not digging into like, well, what happened well, wrong? Coaching- <laughs> Co- coaching is a lot more action oriented yeah. and, and therapy ne- isn't necessarily action oriented. So it just depends on who your therapist is. And but yeah, what you're going anyways. through, your timeline, all of that. So nothing, yeah, nobody, we're not saying that a uh, psychology not, is no, not no. useful. No, no, I, I, I think it's incredibly Same. useful. I've often, I've told my, both of my kids, they need therapists at different times. <laughs> So, you know, and therapy helped me a lot, like as a young person, I, I went to a transpersonal psychologist and, and I learned a tremendous amount from her. So I, I would never, ever say that somebody doesn't need therapy. This is just was his belief for his own career. And what and, he wanted to do with like. And what he wanted to do with his career. So he became, a, he, he kind of quickly became a writer. And as most things, when we're on task to what, you know, spirit and what aligns with spirit and what aligns with our highest interests and the interests of others. uh, Oftentimes we get a lot of open doors that happen because it's a way for, you know, for the universe to support you in doing what is your life's work is going to be. And certainly we felt that from the very beginning of his career, um, he just naturally had doors flying open for him in the writing world. And, and like I said, it did take 10 years. He wrote 10 books before he had a really international global bestseller. And there were times where he barely, he barely got by. And I, I feel like people often quit before they're just, you know, right before they're going to hit it big. And, and fortunately, he did not. And one of the great stories I'd love to share with you is that we were having one of those moments um, with Richard's waning passion, just only because he had written a book and he only got like a $5,000 advance for the book. And he was expecting, you know, four or five times that for, to, to kind of round out his annual income. And we had two small children and we were at a, a restaurant. We'd taken our own cars and met there. And, um, he was telling me that he felt like, wow, I, I didn't, I'm not, cutting it right now. This is not good um, for our financial picture right now. I, I feel like maybe I should get a job like in a human resources department of a large company or something. And I remember just feeling this real strong sense of like, no, you know, no, you can't do that because this is your passion. 
if somebody needs to go get a job, I'll go get a job, you know, and, and you need to stick with, with writing. Cause you're, you're going to make it, it's going to happen. And this is about seven years in and he was pretty despondent for Richard. He didn't have a lot of despondent tendencies, but he was feeling, you know, like, wow, I need to do something differently. And we both drove home that night and I came in just slightly before him. And when I walked in the door, um, we had a babysitter, but she was, you know, still with the kids, getting them ready for bed and I walked in the door, the phone rang. So I ran to the phone and I picked up the phone and on the other end of the phone, there was this woman and she said, hi, this is um, Alice from the Oprah Winfrey show. I'm a producer at the Oprah Winfrey show. She said, the strangest thing just happened about 15 minutes ago. I was um, bent down uh, in the library at the Oprah library and I was looking for a book on stress management. But your husband's book, You Can Be Happy No Matter What, popped off the top of the back shelf and hit me in the head. And she said, I turned around and picked it up. And I realized that he would be the perfect guest to be on Oprah Winfrey. Do you think he could be on a plane to Chicago tomorrow? Richard walked in the door and I just was like, he goes, whoa, what is going on? I go, do you think he could be on a plane to the Oprah Winfrey show tomorrow? <laughs> and he was like, are you kidding me? I'm like, yes. And that was his first appearance on Oprah. Um, and it, and it was a panel discussion. So it didn't like change his career, but it definitely highlighted him in the world as an author, as an up and comer. And it definitely helped him become more marketable as an author and, um, and he developed a relationship with Oprah. She really, really was um, attracted to his humility and his kindness. And at the break, you know, he hadn't said anything yet. There was a panel of four people on the panel. And at the break, she turned to Richard and she said, all right, next time we go in, you are speaking I want everybody else to shut up. Richard hasn't said anything yet. She goes, make it good, Richard, and don't be nervous. There's only 20 million people watching you. <laughs> and so she really did have an affinity toward him, wanted to see him, you know, succeed, um, really loved his books. And, and, um, and it was a change. It was a pivot of energy in his career. And um, I just want to reiterate that, you know, oftentimes we've, we've got that energy happening and we can't see it, you know, but if you stay in things a little bit longer, you're going to hit, you're going to hit it. And I often tell myself that in this world of being an author, just stay with what you're talking about, you know, stick with your messaging, stick with what you're doing because, and you know, you never know when it's going to, it's really going to resonate. And certainly that's been the same in my career. I've, I've seen that over and over again. If I just stick with the same thing soon, uh, maybe later than I think something bigger is going to happen with it. I love that story. And I mean, I especially like, love again, like your faith in him and love because so many people could, yeah, like that was his seventh, what he was right. Or he had already written seven books. So it was gonna be his eighth book. What or like, yeah, seventh book, like, you know, was, that, yeah, yeah like a was, lot of people could be like, yeah, you are amazing, but you're right. Maybe, yeah, maybe getting a job and then you can still work on this on nights and weekends and like, you know, and that you were like, no, stick with this. Like, I will go get a job and, and or like, 
like, yeah, I'm just um, moved by like your love and belief in him. And then look what happened (laughs) or started to happen, I guess. Yeah, no, it was, I mean, really at that point, it, once, once Don't Sweat the Small Stuff came out, it, it was a crazy... Was that the book that he crazy. was then working on? That, Or was that later? No. Um, no, because no, you said 10. Was yeah. yeah, that was three years later. He wrote three books that year, and they all became global international bestsellers. So he, um, he was about, though, three years isn't very long. He was about to really hit it big. And he, he was earning a living, a better living after that point. So we were okay financially. And then, you know, when Don't Sweat the Small Stuff came out, I mean, <laughs> nobody can plan for that kind of success. You know, nobody can. Like even, like you just, it's like, a, it's like an unbelievable experience to go through something like that. And was that, that one and, an immediate, like, bestseller? Pretty much. Pretty much because of the times that book came out in 1997, right? As the technology boom was really getting really, it was the dot-com era. It was like really starting, things were booming, you know, start technology wise and people were really overwhelmed by it and people didn't know how to manage their email and all this stuff that was supposed to give us more time and taking, then it ended up taking time away from what we were doing. You know what I mean? They didn't, it was overwhelming to people. Um, and so I think that's why one of the reasons why don't sweat the small stuff was so incredibly popular. And then the fact that it was a book that everybody bought for somebody else, like people would go to Costco and buy like 10 copies for everyone they knew. <laughs> they wouldn't buy it from the, for themselves, but they buy it for everyone. Funny. They, knew. they wanted everyone else to <laughs> <Yeah>. read it. <laughs> well, I don't need this, but I, everybody else. Like wives buying it for their husbands, you know, it's like they, they, it was just, and it was like that. And then he had three books come out that year. So there was a time where, I mean, I'm not kidding you. One time I was sitting on a Southwest flight and I was walking through the cabin and there was like one of his books on almost every table of the wow. cabin. Like I, every, I would look around and I'd be like, Richard Carlson's don't worry, make money. Richard Carlson's don't sweat the small stuff, Richard. Car-. And then I talked to the lady next to me. She'd be listening to his audiobook. It was crazy. It was just craziness and, and super fun. I mean, really fun, you know, like really just such a fun ride. Trisha here, bringing you a brief interruption, a reminder of a few ways that I'm here to support you. One, of course, I have my book out, F the Shoulds, Do the Once. There's an audiobook version, a paperback, a e-reader version. You can go to ftheshouldsdothewants.com to find the links on where to order it and claim your bonuses. Two, I have a daily inspiration app. It's called Own Your Awesome. You can get it in the Google Play and the Apple App Store hundreds of powerful thoughts and affirmations. You can set a reminder in the app so you get this daily reminder. Could go check it and get your message. I have products in my shop, shop shop.yourjoyologist.com. My favorite right now is the Daily Connection Journal that has these prompts that makes it easy for you to connect with yourself, set intentions, and reflect. Also, I have one-on-one coaching available for the rest of 2022, well, until they fill up, but I don't always offer one-on-one coaching, so 
If you have ever considered it, thought about it, hit me up. You can go to yourjoyologist.com backslash coaching. Um, learn a little bit from it there. And you can also go and schedule a free 15-minute call to talk about what's coming up for you, what you would like to work on, and see if we're a good foot fit for each other. I work with people for a variety of things. Just go to that page, yourjoyologist.com backslash coaching. You'll see a little bit about it. You can also always hit me up at underscore Trisha Huffman to ask any questions. And again, figure out, hmm, is this for me? Trust me, you will not regret investing in yourself in this way. It's a life changer. You don't just evolve in the time we're working together, but take that with you for the rest of your life and you are worth it. Your life is worth it. All right, let's get back to the episode. And throughout all that time, were you taking care of the house and the home and supporting him? Oh, yeah. And like, did you have any, like you were just, it sounds like you were happy, at, you know, in that role and as his partner, like did you ever at that point dream of writing your own book? Well, yes and no, not my own book. No, but I, you know, I was very, I, yeah. Well, so what happened was after the first book came out, Richard and Chicken Soup for the Soul were the first two really, really branded series, you know, like they, they were both neck and neck on the New York times every week. And, um, and, and they were like, uh, those two series kind of go together. Like people who knew chicken soup for the soul knew don't sweat the small stuff, you know? So, um, Richard asked me to write don't sweat the small stuff in love with him. It was the third, the third book in the series. He wrote don't sweat the small stuff. Don't sweat the small stuff with your family. And then we wrote don't sweat the small stuff in love. And so I was fine doing that. Like I, he basically wrote the book and I, we talked about every chapter and I wrote 10 chapters of the book. I mean, it, it was super easy for me. And I, I thought it was really fun to do with him and he loved doing it with me. And, and then we, you know, did like a national tour together. We were on national media and I was pretty much introduced into the brand that way. And then um, Hyperion, who was our publisher at the time, they were a division of Disney. It's now Hachette. Um, they, Bob Miller, the president of Hyperion at the time said, well, we're really happy that, you know, Chris can write too. Do you think she'd write Don't Sweat the Small Stuff for Women? And I was like, Richard was very excited to tell me that. And I just sat there and he told me, he said, I, he goes, I'm so excited to share this with you. Bob Miller wants you to write a book, like a solo book in the series, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff for Women. And I just was like, uh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> like no part of you was like, how exciting. You were just like, no, no. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, well, how would that work? I mean, we got a kid in kindergarten or kid in first grade, a kid in third grade. And like, I, how does that even work? I said, I, I just, and then I said, oh my God, that'll look like I'm writing on your coattails. And who am I to write a book? And like, why would I do that to my life? And you're already, you know, you're already one author in the house is plenty and da, 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 da. And then I said, do I have to do this? And he said, he said, you don't want to. He's like, that's so unlike you. And I go, well, I just, I don't, I don't feel confident. And he's like, well, if you don't, it's okay. No, you don't have to. But if you don't, I'm going to have to find another woman who will. And 
I was just like, what? You know, I, what? So, of course, I wrote it. And it was beautiful because, I mean, Richard already knew I was a very, very good writer. Like, I already, I, I wrote very, very, very well. It was my strongest suit in high school and in college was my writing skills. So, he already knew that. The fact that I'd never dreamed of writing a book myself, I was totally happy staying in the background and supporting him um, was, you know, I had to get over that. And what happened was I started writing and I really did feel like I was an otter taking to water for the first time. It just, it was just, it flowed and it was easy. And he, he taught me how to write a don't sweat book. There was definitely a formula for it. And I learned how to write that 800 to 1200 word short essay. This is before the blog ever happened. You know, blog wasn't a word then. Um, so we were already blogging for books, but we didn't know it. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, so it was, it was a fascinating experience. And then of course, promoting that book scared the living daylights out of me. And like you didn't, I, you were happy to, yeah, be behind the scenes or be the supporter, but not like, let yes. me go out in front alone. Let me go out in front and be on my own. Yeah, it, it was terrifying to, because it was such a high national platform. It was not a small thing. I mean, we, they printed like a million copies of our books uh, out the door, wow. like went out the door. And I didn't know if I would carry the weight of the brand on my own. And that was terrifying to me and terrifying and vulnerable to put myself out there that way. And then, you know, I, I, I did end up carrying the weight of the brand, um, which was very powerful. Although I kind of like went like this, all right, done. Did right. what I, was I wrote to my do. woman, like the book in the series that was requested of me. I'm clocking out. Like, <laughs> I did. I clocked out because I, and I, I got approached by real simple magazine was a new magazine at that time. And I was approached by them to be the voice of that magazine. And I turned it down because I, I was like, no, my kids, my kids are little. I mean, if I do that, I'm, I'm got a career and, you know, my husband had a more than full-time career. And I just, you know, I just knew that I wasn't going to regret, um, devoting my time to my family. And, and that, that was my priority. I, I just know how I am. I'm very, I'm very much driven. I'm a super driven person. And I thought I'm going to be one of those moms that's just so driven that I'll, I'll leave my kids and I'll abandon them. And I'll be like, and I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to make that choice. And I also knew I was young. I knew I had a full career ahead of me at some point if I wanted one. Well, that's what I was going to ask you too. It's like, yeah, of like knowing like, no, right now I want to be here for my children. And great. I have these seeds inside me now of like things I can do when I am ready to be more outside of the home. Yeah. So it, it was, it was a choice, a very conscious choice on my part. And one that Richard supported me in, you know, if that's what I wanted, he would have supported me in anything I did as, as I supported him. He was always very perplexed that I didn't have more of a career um, as a mom. But I, again, I really knew how driven I am as a woman and a person. I just have that hard work ethic drive that I could, you know, I could work really long hours if I, if I was driven enough. And I just didn't want to sacrifice my family. Um, 
But when you said he was like perplexed, he wasn't like pushing you, just sort of like checking in no. often. Like, are you sure? Like making sure like. Yeah. Yeah. Just like you making know, sure you weren't um, like sacrificing for the family, but like it was an actual choice that you were making. Is that more? Yes. That it was what I wanted. Yeah. yeah. And I, and I would, I did do some speaking. Like I remember the Susan G. Komen foundation asked me to speak for the breast cancer awareness, big fundraiser. And there were speaking events that would come up like that. And they would ask. And when they asked if it was something that was a really worthwhile cause, I would do it. And, um, it wasn't a paid thing. Like I didn't feel comfortable being a paid speaker at that time, but I would, you know, if they asked me, I would go speak. So it felt like a good, you know, a good cause. And I I would do that. So yeah, just hearing of your love story, I can't imagine what it was like then losing him. Was that something that was a surprise? I mean, Death is, oh. I mean, loss is oft, often a surprise, even if there's an illness or something involved. But like, yeah, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. And I just I want your listeners to know it's been 16 years. So I'm very comfortable speaking about um, losing Richard at this point. And I don't, I often don't even tear up that much anymore because it has been a very, very long time. Um, and I've talked about it so much over the years. It's been such a great part of my life's work is to uh, help other people go through loss of all kinds. And yes, so I would, I had, we, me and my family had the trauma of sudden loss, um, instantaneous mm. loss. And that was, so Un- if it was 16 years ago, loss. were your kids like teenagers? They were teenagers. They were, they're in high school. So going back to high school, imagine, you know, being in the fishbowl of high school and losing your famous guru, happiness, father, um, and still having to go through the rest of high school. One of my daughters was a freshman in high school. The other was a graduating senior. So we it literally, Richard went on a flight. He was, pro- he was promoting his latest book and he went on a flight. He was on his way to New York and on the descent of that flight, he had a blood clot and a blood clot um, in the form of a pulmonary embolism that um, when you have it on the, the descent of a flight, the decompression creates a situation in your body that, that you, can't, you can't come back from. If that blood clot is released, it travels up your leg to your lung and explodes and it it's it's instant death essentially so it happened on and the plane so as they're in descent but by the time the they landed yeah they nobody knew he was gone until he didn't get up wow it was it's silent it was totally silent um yeah so it was <laughs> You know, imagine, you know, you're 43 years old, you know, you're at the peak of your lives together as far as, you know, you're, you're just entering midlife. He was 45 and, you know, you're, you're like going about your ordinary day and you, you get that phone call. I mean, it, it was, you know, 1130 in the morning. Um, and I received that phone call. Um, and it, I mean, well, you can, you all can watch what it was like. Heather Locklear played me in a lifetime movie and she did a great job acting it. I'll tell you that it was very much like 
that that's opening scene in the Lifetime movie. So when you do well, get a link chance the movie. to look up <laughs> <laughs> Christine Carlson story, don't sweat the small stuff, the Christine Carlson story on Lifetime. She did a great job of reenacting that. It was a brutal, brutal, brutal moment in my life. And, and it's brutal for anyone who gets that kind of unbeknownst phone call. Um, you just, you can't even wrap your head around it. It's so unbelievable. And yeah, I had, and I, I was say, I, 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 I lost my father suddenly, but I was grown. I was about to get on a plane myself to like leave on tour. Cause I was a sound engineer at the time and, um, got a phone call that he had been found dead. And so it was a sudden death thing. And we didn't even, I'm guessing same thing that they probably had to do. You don't know what happened. So even that he was, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's totally different. This is my father. You had built a life with someone, you they have kids, but like, it, yeah, I know that gr- like, aversion. I think we don't, I think as much as we know grief that we still have our unique relationship to it, no matter how it can be similar, you know, that, um, but yeah, like I just wanted to know, like, I feel you with this like unexplainable grief and like life just stops, but it's happening at the same time. And you're like, what is going, it changed my life in so many ways. So yeah, I can't imagine. Yes. You, yeah. Cause at that time too, it seems like your life is like set. Right. Like, I'm sure you had your own hardships because no matter how amazing things are. Um, but yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course. I mean, there's always challenges, you know, along the way. I mean, Richard and I were really blessed with an unbelievable marriage and relationship. We used to say we had a lot of issues, but what, not with each other. So, which is amazing. <laughs> but we had issues. We had life issues we dealt with as a team, you know, as, as a partnership and, um, especially, you know, parenting is always like, wow, it's always challenging. I think we spend as much time strategizing about how to raise two girls as we did about writing books. So, <laughs> but even because of that, because it sounds like, you, you know, how strong your partnership is, then again, like how much that must have made the loss even more challenging for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, I think that loss of a partner or child or parent is just such a huge loss for us all to go through. But when you really, really are in true partnership with somebody and they're in your home, those are the biggest losses because it leaves a hole in your home, a real true hole. And, and, you know, for, to lose a life partner, to lose a father that when you're young is, is even different. I mean, it's hard always, like you can't even, you know, my heart goes out to everyone because we're all going to go through this at different times in our lives. And it's just, it's so painful. But when it's that loss in your home, it's, 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 it's a real difficult transition, um, to put it mildly. It's, it's a, it's a death that means the death of all of your dreams as a family, as an individual, um, it's just, it's just a death and it's different than divorce for that reason, because, you know, when parents get divorced, the kids, they go through a a huge change and a lot of grief too, but at least they have both their parents, you know, but death is different because you are literally, you know, as you know, missing your father, missing your husband. Um, yeah, it's, it's a different ball game, but it's, it's, uh, it's tremendously difficult when, um, you're so in love with the person. And 
I only saw my life with Richard. You know, I, I was so naive to think that it, it was just going to go on like everything else had, you know, until we were older, until we were old people together. And um, it, it forced me in a lot of ways. I write about this in one of my books. It forced me to integrate aspects of myself. You know, I was very feminine. I'd grown up with Richard, met him when I was 18 years old. And he really took on the masculine role. Although he was a very integrated man, I felt like sometimes there were two mothers in our house. He was so nurturing as a human. He was such an empath and so nurturing. Um, but I was really that I, I was able to really be a woman. And I, I'm always so grateful for that. And then at his death, you know, it's forced me to find my masculine qualities to become more integrated in this life as a, in, in a wholeness sort of capacity, because I have really chosen the solo route. Um, I've not remarried and probably won't remarry in my lifetime. Now I've been in love. I've had lots of boyfriends <laughs> in the, it, since, so, since, he's been. since his death. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was in my peak of my sexuality at 43. I mean, I was, I was like, pretty horny for that first. <laughs> I was like, Oh shit. You know, like, how am I going to do this? You know, like this is, this is a whole new thing. You know, like, what do I do? I didn't know how to be single. Um, didn't know how to take care of myself sexually. I was like, it, it just was a whole new ball game for me to learn how to be a single woman, a single mom, um, you know, pick up the reins of the don't sweat the small stuff brand, have a career, you know, all of it. Um, was that something that the, the picking up the reins of the don't swell the small stuff, was that something that came to you from like publisher brand or was that within you? Like, oh, I can't like let this die with him, you know, like. Both. I mean, both. I think that the publisher, um, they, they asked me to write don't sweat the small stuff for moms. Um, they saw the value of me taking on the brand title and the brand leadership of doing that. And, um, and so I did. Yeah. And I, I, I feel like that was a real, I wasn't the first book I wrote after Richard died. I started writing in my journal as a healing tool and that, that journal became the memoir that is called heartbroken open, which became the biopic lifetime movie this last fall. And that took many, many years for that to happen. But um, were you? But so you were writing the in your journal, journal, yeah. probably not intending that it would or or but no. Um, and so yeah, like, did that come out as the first book, or was that was the first book you act you wrote? Even though like you didn't that, because you were just like writing in your journal. Well, I published early on in the first year. I published a letter that Richard had written to me on our 18th wedding anniversary. And it's called, um, the book is called An Hour to Live, An Hour to Love, The True Story of the Best Gift Ever Given. And it's a beautiful letter that he wrote to me. And I published it as a tribute back to him because he answered the question, if you had an hour to live and could make one phone call. This is from Stephen Levine in his book, A Year to Live. He asks, if you had an hour to live and could make one phone call, who would it be to? What would you say? And why are you waiting? And so he sat down and he wrote me like this 37 page love letter, which is just absolutely beautiful. 
And it, it spoke so much of Richard as a man um, in a way, in ways that maybe his audience might not have known him. And so I published it back with my response in it um, as a tribute to him. And that was the very first book I published. And I'm so upset because it's out of print right now. And I can't get the rights oh. back. I, I don't know why. I don't know why, but they're holding on to it. And I'm so pissed about it. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> annoying. If they're going to not put it, if it's not, not in print. They're not. It's not in print. It's such a beautiful little book. And people are always asking for it. So, yeah, I don't know how to deal. I'm still going to probably have to go to the top of my publisher to get that. But I'm going to be working on that. So it's a beautiful book, though. And that was the first project that I took on the first year um, after he died. And then I, I was asked to write a book, um, from, from our publisher. And so I, I, that's when I wrote Heartbroken Open. I said, well, I've, I've been writing, you know, I could turn this into a memoir. And so I turned it into a memoir. And then I wrote Don't Sweat the Small Stuff for Moms. It was kind of a big, you know, like, well, I'm over here, I'm doing all this over here. And then I'm like, an hour over here, I'm writing Don't Sweat the Small Stuff for Moms. And, and I wrote that book and um, then it was a while before I, I wrote, I, I started to um, work on like online courses, like starting to, you know, kind of plan for the future of on digital stuff and all that. So then I wrote um, From Heartbreak to Wholeness. And that was a book that I wrote 10 years after Richard died. It was really my rendition of how to go through a life changing transition that basically annihilates your identity. Um, of any kind. And that meant the loss of um, your health. A lot of people go through a huge grieving process at the loss of their health because it annihilates their identity as a healthy person, like people who lose their career after 40 years, for people who um, go through divorce, um, and, and for people who go through death. So I, I wrote that book, and that's, um, that's probably the, that's the last book that I've written. And what, so, um, yeah, like, so with the, obviously, you wrote a whole book, but like what the summarizing of like, so you like saw yourself on this journey to like, reclaim your own wholeness. Right. And you being a joyologist, <laughs> the book is called From Heartbreak to Wholeness, The Hero's Journey to Joy. So um, I decided that I did go through a process of healing, and it really did follow the hero's journey. And so I decided to loosely use the hero's journey as I outlined how somebody else might reframe their own story into the hero's journey and how they might see that the way we think about our lives has everything to do with how we experience our lives and that the pivotal choice that we all have to make when in crisis is, do I want to be a hero or do I want to be a victim? And that that really is the pivot turn toward um, moving forward in life and claiming the life that's yours still to live. And I certainly saw myself doing that and doing it in different turns. And, you know, I always say to people, you know, realize one thing, and that is that we, we waffle on that. You know, it's not like you just claim it once. So oh, I'm going to be the hero. You have to claim to be the hero every day. And, and sometimes many and moments throughout day. the day. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it's not always that way. Sometimes you wake up and you don't feel like you can be the hero today and that's fully okay. 
um, as long as you wake up from that experience, you know, not five years from now, but maybe tomorrow and claim differently, you know, like I, I'm a big proponent of allowing yourself to feel where you, where you are and not, um, push yourself toward positivity too early. Um, just be where you are, go through what you need to go through, let your waves of grief come and then, you know, dust yourself back off and get back up. You know, the, the key is just standing up and saying, I, I understand that this is my life right now. I didn't choose this. I didn't choose this thing to happen to my life, but I'm going to step into life. Even though I don't feel like I can, I'm going to do it anyways. And I'm going to just step in. And that's all, that's all that's required of anyone is just to, just to be present and, and, and do what you can every single day until you feel better, you know, until you go through your healing process until you are in a place of where you um, can reform your life and reshape your life and, and claim your identity again. Yeah, I love that, especially like the, the one of the first things you said about like it's how we think about our life. And did you like with my sudden loss of my father? I mean, yeah, I went through my. I mean, I quit my entire life, like. <laughs> I like did. I was like, I'm no longer doing sound, which is I had my dream life. I did so much, but it also and I went through like yeah, a long healing journey. And but at the same time, and even in the depths of like the pain and all of that was very much like, wow, you really can just die like that. You know, like it really made me want to shake people to the fact of like, you're alive. And sure, like you're you might not have like the dream ideal life or whatever, but like I was so present to how miserable so many people seem to be out in the world and just wanted to shake them of like, you're alive. And that's a big part of what my mission has always been. And even like the joyologist is that I can feel like, oh no, people are thinking like you're supposed to be happy all the time. But I'm like, no, but just it's just the reminder of like, can you claim some joy for yourself today? Even if like you just got the worst news and you're going through a hard time or like what's happening in the world is so troubling. Like you're alive today. So like just even if that's like, I keep staring out at like the bushes in front of my house and like seeing like, okay, claim that joy. Did, did, did his death in some way made it motivate you to more like embrace the fact of like, okay, I'm alive and being more. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I'd say it really woke me up. I mean, and it was a great awakening. And I think that's what you're describing happened to you too, is, is you awakened and awakened very deeply to the fact that life is very precious and it is very temporary for all of us. And we don't really get a do-over. So, <laughs> you know, like you, you, you don't get a do-over. So what you're doing in your life right now really matters to your experience. And, and if it, like I always say, we, I have a book group that I run to like where I help other people write books. And I always say to them, like, what if you die tomorrow and what would be left unsaid? What would you feel like you'd be like, oh my God, I didn't say that. I didn't do that thing because that's what we all face every day. When we get out of bed, we face the joy of meeting a new day that we get to have a new day. And I think what you've said is very poignant that it's a privilege to be alive. And your dad, my husband, many people don't get a long life. They, they don't get to have years and years and years to fumble through it. You know, they, theirs was, done early. And 
I can honestly say that I know my husband lived every day to its fullest and that he knew when he died that, that he was probably very sad to leave this world, but he knew he had lived a full life, even at 45, at 45 years old, he had lived a full life. And, um, and I've always been wanting, I've wanted to say that too, that if I die tomorrow, I would feel really good about the life that I've lived and, and the way that I've impacted other people and how I've lived my life. And I think that it was Stephen Covey who first came out with the idea that you should visualize yourself at your own funeral, because if you do that and you, you wonder like, what would you want people to say at your memorial service at your celebration of life service? And you live to that, that that's a very valuable lesson for all of us. And I think that's the true gift of loss is that when we break it down, the people that we've lost, what we, what we realize is, wow, this is short, it's a short time. And you're right. It's, it's, you have to look for the small things to be joyful for, and then let the big things be the icing on the yeah. cake, you know? Well, that's what I was thinking. You were saying like, you know, not everyone has this time to fumble through life, but like also so often people are putting off like their joy and like, right, okay, I got to work hard and do Absolutely. this. And we're always trying to like sort of check these boxes or get to these other places. Or if I have this, then it'll look like this or I'll feel this. But it's like, okay, you know, it's like waiting until you have vacation or waiting until you can retire one day to actually enjoy your life. Like we don't have that much time to enjoy our life for as much as we know. And so you may still have to show up at your job to earn the money. And like, you know, it's that those sorts of things, but also like trying to like, yeah, find joy in the fact that I'm alive. I get here. Like, what can you find <laughs> to be joyful about? Or like, right, I work a job to pay these bills to support my family. And those are choices you make. And so like, how can you enjoy that more if your life did end tomorrow? Or maybe do you finally want to find another job because you despise yours so much? Like, we don't know how much time we have left to find joy in our life. Absolutely. And I, and I think that the key is like realizing that no matter what your circumstances are, you can do that. You can find joy, but it does have to be, it has to be, you know, your intention to do so. Yes. All right. Speaking of that, I'm going to get to the questions I ask everybody. What and the first one is, what is something you do, or can, you can name more than one, to raise your joy levels? So when you want a little boost in joy. Wow. Well, for me, I love my time in nature so much. Um, I mean, I literally can boost my own joy by just looking outside and just tuning into what's present, um, outside. And I, um, am very blessed to live in a place, um, where I have beauty all around me and there's beautiful trees or there's ocean or there's mountains. And I, you know, I spend my time just, you know, looking toward nature to, to boost my joy. And, and that said, I also, I have to say that my joy is tremendously boosted by my first sip of coffee in the morning. <laughs> I actually, I'm very, very happy once I've had my coffee. <laughs> no, and I love it. That's what, like, I once I've had like somebody I know for a very long time, a musician, and I asked him this question and he was like trying to name these, like, let me think of what 
like, what's a good thing to say? And I was like, what about coffee? I'm pretty sure you love coffee. Doesn't that bring you joy? And he was like, well, yeah, I didn't know I was allowed to say that. I'm like, well, no, I'm like, the the practice is to be aware of these things that bring you joy and to not judge yourself for them or try to find the perfect joy thing. Like, this is the reality of your life. What brings you joy? (laughs) You know, I I think just also for me, it's it's a function of just um, noticing when I'm not choosing joy and then bringing my attention back to the present moment. I'm a very practiced meditator. So I've, you know, I've been meditating since I was like 18 years old and really blessed to have been introduced to meditation really early in life. And I think that just being quiet and tuning in to a peaceful inner world brings me a tremendous amount of joy. And, um, and then there's the extrinsic things. Like I love my grandkids. I have five grandkids you know, hanging out with them. I mean, I, I, that's just the best, you know? So if I'm not feeling, I, I just head to, I have a place near them. They live about four hours away from me. So I have a place near them. So I just head up to there. I just head to that area when I need to, you know, spend more time with them. And a family is still such a huge joy for me. I love that. Okay. The next question is um, to apply this phrase to your own life. What is easiest for you is not always what is best for you. So it's like, what is easiest for me is blank. What is best for me is blank. So it may be like a natural habit or way of being. Well, what comes to mind is um, just like the simple things in life. Like, well, what's easiest for me is to go to the refrigerator and grab some cheese (laughs) for a snack. What's best for me is to grab the apple, (laughs) you know? I mean, um, I'm trying to think how would that apply to other things? What's easiest for me? is, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, probably what was always easiest for me was not to work. um, But what was best for me was to honor my life and honor my life purpose and do the work that I do. Right. What is easiest was maybe to stay in the background. (laughs) Yeah. But what was best for me was to step out and to step forward as a leader and a teacher and, um, and, and to be, to honor who I am on this earth. So that those are the bigger things for sure. Yeah, so powerful. Okay, the last question is, and you sort of already uh, like said this for me, but the name of the podcast is Claim It. I use that because so often, yeah, like I said, we can put these things outside of us. Like I'll be enough once I do this, once I have this. I'll be successful once I do this. So I'll, I'll have joy once I, we're like putting things outside of us and I feel we can claim these things at any time in the day if we put our attention to it. And sometimes that means several moments throughout the day. (laughs) So what is something that you are claiming for yourself right now? Well, I'm going to be really truthful. And that is that I'm always claiming the present moment. Um, That is my practice in life is to be more present at every moment. And that is something that I'm always reminding myself more and more of every single day, every single moment. I, you know, I like everyone make plans for my future, but I really love to live in the moment. I love to put my full attention on where I am in this moment, whatever it is. I mean, whatever it is I'm doing. So yeah, that's, that's, that's what I'm claiming. And I mean, I'm, I'd say I've already claimed joy as my right um, to live a life of joy, but that is also, you know, Claiming peace, claiming calm, and claiming joy are what I'm always working toward doing. And and these times are getting more and more difficult to do that, you know, with everything that's happening in the world right now. But 
I feel like it's very important for every person to maintain that sense of groundedness and peace and, and that sense of no matter what's happening on the outside, you really can experience joy um, from the inside because it's what's in your inner world if that's what you're cultivating, that we all have like joy seeds that we can plant in ourselves and practices that we can do to bring ourselves into gratitude, which immediately brings you into joy. So if you can find one small thing to be grateful for, one small thing, then you can find joy. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing some of your story with you. And we'll definitely link to your books and the Heather Locklear <laughs> movie. Uh, any last words? Yeah, no, just thank you so much for the work that you do, Tricia. This has been a beautiful conversation and I'm so appreciative to your listeners um, for being here. So thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. For more information, show notes, go to yourjoologist.com backslash podcast and you'll find all the episodes there. For more from Christine, you can go to christinecarlson.com. Definitely check out that Lifetime movie if that's something that sounds interesting to you. For all things me, yourjoyologist.com, trishahuffman.com. I'm at underscore Trisha Huffman is my main social these days. I'd say I'm most active on Instagram and TikTok, trying to show up more for TikTok. I think that's a fun platform. <laughs> Again, please, 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 if you haven't yet, go get my book. F the shoulds, do the wants, get clear on who you are, what you want, why you want it. Um, it's not just for the big things in life. It's really about these moment to moment things. So paying attention to really our thoughts, our feelings, our actions, our behaviors all day long, how this one simple thing, paying attention to the word should, and then the feeling of should makes me super aligned and alive in my life, no matter what ha is happening. It makes me so present so self-aware. So it's not just like F your responsibilities. It's looking at what are your choices? What are you doing? Why? So sometimes it's still choosing that should, but looking deeper at why you want to do that thing, how you'll feel. There's so many layers in it. Please go check it out. F the shoulds, do the once.com. And if you have it, please leave a review on Amazon, on Goodreads, wherever you got it. I am so grateful for you for listening, for buying the book. Go get my app, Own Your Awesome, in the App Store, products, shop.yourjoyologist.com. I'm available for some one-on-one -on -one coaching for the rest of the year. Hit me up, send an email or a DM at underscore Trisha Huffman. I'm here for you. All right, for the last thought of the day, I'd just love you to think like, how do you want to feel in your life? How do you want to feel?